Hello, welcome to the CityWire Funds Fanatic podcast. My name is Gavin Lumsden. Today, I'm presenting the second in a series of three programmes in association with BB Healthcare Investment Trust. The aim of our series is to bring to wider attention some of the important topics around healthcare that the Investment Trust Board and its fund manager regularly consider. With me is Paul Major, BB Healthcare's fund manager. Paul, good to see you again. Hello, Kevin. Last time we discussed the incredible international collaboration between scientists and doctors that led to the successful development of COVID-19 vaccines in record time. Um, Today, uh, we're recording on the anniversary of the UK's first lockdown, and we're going to take a closer look at the vaccines and how they might need to develop. But before I introduce our two guests, Paul, What are you hoping to find out from our conversation? Sure, as you touched on, I think it's great that we've developed um, these vaccinations against SARS-CoV-2, but it's worth bearing in mind there's a whole planet that we have to vaccinate and there's clearly a long way to go before that's complete. Along the way, issues such as production capacity, distribution logistics, and of course the emergence of these variants could weigh on the future outlook and the success of that programme. So it sort of begs the question, what does the future of uh, vaccination against SARS-CoV-2 look like? And what do we need to be thinking about as investors in terms of that and hopefully around the, 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 the timing of uh, a return to normal uh, in the coming months to years? Great. Thanks, Paul. Time to introduce our two guests to answer your question. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Annalisa Jenkins, who describes herself as a life sciences thought leader, which might sound a little abstract, but is in fact a totally apt description for someone like herself, a fully qualified medical doctor who spent over 25 years working in senior research and development roles in big pharma, culminating as chief executive of Dimension Therapeutics. Annalisa is nowadays a committee member of the Science Board to the US Food and Drug Administration, chair of the Court of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and also sits on advisory groups at Genomics England looking into COVID-19. Annalisa, it's very good to meet you. Uh, Hi, Gavin. Good to be here. Thank you. Our second guest is Professor Justin Stebbing. Justin is a non-executive director on the board of BB Healthcare, but his main job is Professor of Cancer Medicine and Oncology at Imperial College London, where he focuses on immunotherapies for breast, lung and gastrointestinal cancers. In the past year, he's probably become best known for leading a team of researchers that used artificial intelligence to identify an already approved drug, baricitinib, a rheumatoid arthritis treatment, as a potential treatment for COVID as well. Justin, good to see you again. Good to be with you, Gavin. It seems likely, judging from uh, Prime Minister's warning today, that there will be a third or fourth wave of COVID in the coming months, unfortunately. Hopefully later rather than sooner, so we can work on vaccinations. Um, Annalisa, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on uh, the probability of the next wave? Uh, Well, Gavin, of course, um, the nature of uh, an infection like Uh, COVID is that there inevitably will be a next wave. Uh, Of course, one has to define what a wave really means. Um, And what we should really be focusing on is um, how do we um, uh, get prepared uh, to manage and navigate through uh, the inevitable uh, next wave. Um, And in order to uh, decrease the impact that that will have, not only at the individual level, but of course, as we've heard over the last year, the impact that that will have broadly on our healthcare system and also, of course, on just generally um, our society and our economy. Justin, let's take that forward a little bit. Um, Is there any chance it could be silent, you know, with infections, but low morbidity and mortality? I think we don't know yet. I think the key question is, 
for the upcoming winter is what will the excess mortality from COVID-19 be? I think for a fourth wave, and we're already seeing this in Minnesota, Michigan, and Florida, and perhaps around Europe, is that it's not going to be accompanied by a similar pattern of hospitalizations and deaths because of the vaccines. That will create a slight political dilemma. What do you do with the surging case numbers, but because of the vaccinations, what will you, what restrictions may you apply? Or, or may you just say, look, the reality is by September, I think there'll be a realization that this will be endemic. The probability of having a COVID-19 zero society, I think is very low. By September, we're gonna have data from kids vaccination programs as well, which is a ethical debate in its own right, um, considering the number of children you need to vaccinate with the arm pains and fevers to save one child's life. Obviously there's the argument about transmission in schools and so forth. But I think, I think the concept of herd immunity as we've seen in Manaus in Brazil, where they had a very vicious further wave despite huge seroprevalence rates means that we might not ever achieve herd immunity and we're going to get used to living with it. Now, in terms of future vaccination strategies, as you hinted on, and as Annalisa said, it's gonna be different. Pfizer are banking on a third booster shot. Moderna have changed the sequence to match the E484K mutation in the South African and the Brazilian variants. And we just don't know the durability of vaccinations, which raises the issues of vaccine passports and so forth. So there, all these things raise more questions than they do answers. But I think, I think the future will be learning to live with it. And I think it will cause a lot less alarm going forwards. But it's possible with the variants, as Paul mentioned, that the story isn't fully written yet. We've had the highly transmissible B117 variant, which may be associated with more deaths because it lasts longer in you. We've had the vaccine resistant variants in Brazil and South Africa. Are we gonna have a combination of highly transmissible and vaccine resistant? I don't know, but One's tempted to say right now that with the pace of vaccinations in America, UK and Israel, we can see that things are going to get better and we're waiting for Europe and the rest of the world to catch up. Yeah, I think that last point is so important. It's tempting sometimes to be overly parochial and focus on what has been a remarkable effort here in the UK and clearly in Israel, the Emirates, and now we're seeing obviously in the US, but we have to remind ourselves that the virus knows no boundaries. Um, and that really this is a global issue, a global problem, and needs to find a global solution. So I think that throughout this discussion, you know, again, when talking about an endemic virus and its impact on our society here, um, that's going to be to a certain extent determined by how the rest of the world um, and other countries um, are able to implement their public health uh, goals and priorities and and over time we again should come back to that because you know whilst we're living in unprecedented times vaccinating an entire population over such a short, short space of time which we've never done before okay then the question arises as we're thinking about future waves and exposure potentially to new variants how do we sustain that and build an ecosystem within our in our public health system and our general health system to be able to navigate that uh, sequentially. 
um, over the years to come. I think people would like to know, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty around the, the variants, but um, you're talking about, uh, you and Justin talking about it being endemic and, and kind of never going away. You know, how, how serious, how severe could be the, the, the following waves? Um, will they be as bad as, the, as what we've had so far? It's been a race, hasn't it, between a pathogen and vaccination. That's what's been happening this year. Some people call it a molecular arms race. But I don't think the future waves will be as bad. My first point, Gavin, was what will the excess mortality look like in the future? Um, I just saw a Daily Mail article. Obviously, I obtain all my medical knowledge from the Daily Mail saying that in the last couple of weeks, there has been zero excess mortality in the UK, which is hugely encouraging. But in all seriousness, there are a lot of unknowns. Who would have known, who would have thought that 2020 would turn out the way it did? And I suspect the story isn't written yet. Crucially, we don't understand the role of previous, how long vaccines are going to last for. And it's not an all or nothing thing. So we saw from Novavax and Johnson Johnson that they just worked less well against Brazilian and South African variants. It wasn't like they did work against the classical wild type USA strain and what didn't work against South Africa and Brazilian variants. And maybe we should be a bit careful not to use the name of origin as there's a bit of controversy there, but that's what I do, so sorry. But um, it, it's not an all or nothing thing. So even if we have a vaccine that prevents hospitalization and deaths, it may not pre prevent asymptomatic infection, for example, and it may not prevent asymptomatic transmission as well. There are a lot of unknowns. Having been in drug development over uh, really so many years, it's remarkable to think that we're now taking actions and trying to make predictions with data sets that are remarkably small and are really um, a data sets that will mature over time. I was, the, the, two er, the two questions that really at the moment are unknown, as Justin has just mentioned, are one, the durability. The durability of the vaccine is a critical uh, data set. And we will start to get some data on that, emerging data, I think, as the summer progresses into the second half of the year, of course. Um, and the second, uh, beyond the, the, the durability is really um, this issue of transmissibility. And so those with um, mild, and particularly the asymptomatics, you know, do the vaccines uh, prevent that or uh, to a certain degree uh, suppress that? Because that will, of course, determine, um, as Justin was saying, whether we are able to get to herd immunity um, and what that might look like. I, I personally, I feel it's going to be challenging <laughs> to really? get to herd immunity. And if we assume that that's the case, by definition, we're in a situation of an endemic uh, disease and we have many endemic viruses that circulate seasonally through our populations. And so then the question then just becomes, how do we... Um, take actions, whether those be vaccine, therapeutic prophylaxis, and just public health measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions, to be able to minimise the impact 
on society. We've talked about the the, the, the next wave. Um, let's think about vaccine developments. And uh, Justin, uh, it, the question is, do we need uh, multivalent vaccines uh, immunising against two or more strains? Um, it, it, could that be as easy as it has been for the flu, uh, for example? Yeah. So if you have a vaccine that reduces an efficacy to say 50 to 60% efficacy, to me, that's still meaningful. And provided enough people are vaccinated albeit without herd immunity, my overriding view is I think we'll be okay. And by September, COVID will largely be off the front pages, but it will probably still be on pages two and three. Annalise, in terms of the, some of the practicalities you were mentioning, you know, could we combine flu and COVID jabs in one shot? Uh, moving forward? I, I actually am not necessarily of the view that that makes sense, uh, to be honest. I think that we are um, used to having vaccine vaccinations for different diseases, different vaccines for different diseases. I suspect it's going to be rather complicated. Um, and in the world of drug development, it's usually good to try and keep things simple. <laughs> um, so um, interestingly, as you know, and I'm sure you've spoken about this on previous episodes, that we've seen no flu this year. I think one of the interesting um, in the questions... Yeah, in the Southern Hemisphere. I think it's going to be fascinating to see uh, what we see uh, coming up, uh, you know, next winter, you know. Um, and, and again, I mean, I think many of us, Paul, last summer, were very concerned about the combination of flu and COVID. It didn't really turn out as we, as we thought, actually. And so, um, so you know, I, I, my view, to summarise, is I suspect we will not primarily head in the direction of a single vaccine to cover both. I think technically it'll be challenging from a regulatory point of view. There'll be some challenging uh, from a scientific, just generally clinical studies. It'll be challenging. We might see it one day, but I don't think that's the scenario we're going to be in in the next year or two. I agree with that completely. There won't be a joint. There'll probably be joint testing this winter for SARS and influenza, but not joint vaccinations. No, no, exactly. Okay, Paul, I wanted to bring you in, if I I can. Um, Speaking to you before, you wanted to ask about the Hoskins effect and antigenic sin, which sounds sounds terrible. Uh, Can you explain what they are, first of all, before you put your question? Sure. sure. Very very simply, the the, the immune system uh, prioritises speed over everything else. So if it it, it looks at uh, previous immunological um, memory and exposure. So, So simply put, if your body thinks it's seen something before, it will produce the same antibodies that were successful the, the last time around. So one of the challenges uh, around these variants, you just just in touch with the point, these, these variants of COVID, that, that they're actually small changes in sequence. Um, so so I, I, I guess it'd be interesting to, 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 to hear um, the participants' thoughts on, on, on whether or not it might be challenging to, to, to get variant boosters to actually create new antibodies, or if in fact the body's going to say, oh, it's another... SARS-CoV-2, I'll just churn out the antibodies I churned out in response to the first vaccination that I got. Yeah, that does sound um, problematic. Um, Justin, do you want to tackle that first? It's a great question. We know that infection with the 2002-2003 SARS, perhaps MERS gives some protection against SARS-CoV-2, as does infection with routine seasonal coronaviruses as well. We know that one type of flu or one type of flu vaccine can confer some cross immunity, though not complete cross immunity with others as well. And so there's many, many layers to your question. 
I, you know, with this virus, it has no aim, it has no desire other than to reproduce its genetic material. And it's very good at that because of its viral load during the asymptomatic period when no one knows when they're infected. But in terms of the immune response to it and whether we need new vaccines, I suspect that we will do. Um, I think it's become clear that we will need boosters just from the Imperial College REACT type seroprevalence study showing the decline in antibodies. But at the same time, the nightmare scenario that we'll need another booster every say three to six months doesn't look applicable or appropriate. But one thing we will hear about just purely based on numbers is that people who have been vaccinated will become infected and some of them will become sick. Now the reason for that will be maybe the vaccine doesn't work in them or the vaccine durability wears off and sometimes the vaccines don't work. But the reality is if you've got six people around you and they all have umbrellas up, even if yours isn't working, you're gonna have some protection from the rain, right? I would reiterate and I think support the fact that, you know, my going in hypothesis was uh, the annual, annual booster. Uh, obviously I was concerned that, that it would be more frequent. I think I think we're coming to realize that's be the case. Annual, I mean, Having said that, we shouldn't underestimate the enormity of an annual booster for COVID. Um, and uh, not only just in the UK, but globally. You know, if you think about how long it's taking and how long we predict it's going to take to get sufficient coverage on a global basis. So, so for me, really, the, the bigger question is, you know, could this perhaps be spaced out perhaps to every couple of years um, and could we get there and I think that is something that uh, we just don't have enough data on at the moment um, and uh, you know to Justin's point of view uh, point as well the other the other point I think we have to really work through is really what are we trying to achieve here if this is going to be endemic you know what is it that we will be prepared to accept as a society mm -hmm. um, and that balance between health of our people and the functioning of our society. And I, I do think that that debate is very much still ongoing in obviously uh, countries around the world and some coming to very different views on that, on that point, frankly. So that's going to be really interesting um, as it plays out. And I, I believe that governments today almost haven't yet come to that grand master plan. They're still so busy in the near term you know, what's the plan over the next few months? But I don't think we've seen all that much yet on, you know, what do we think the next two years might look like? And what is it that we think as a society we would be willing to live with well, um, on no, account of COVID? And Lisa, help me and, and them, the governments, the politicians, what, what, are, what are the implications that you're, uh, you, you're identifying there? Well, you know, we, we're very familiar with the flu. I, interestingly, um, the COVID pandemic has really amplified and perhaps shone a light on data that much of the population didn't realize the mortality the sickness and the deaths uh, on an annual basis that we as a society seem to be comfortable to live with each year even with the um, availability of vaccines and vaccination programs in our very sophisticated public health you know um, system so are we going to apply the same lens and believe that actually um, you know, having this virus circulating through 
um, the population as we perhaps put in place some public health measures, you know, will we still be wearing masks? Will we still be socially distancing a little bit, you know? Um, you know, and will we therefore be accepting that we're able to, uh, there will be some excess deaths and, uh, and that, however, the healthcare system and our, you know, our hospital systems are able to cope on an annual basis. These are the sort of questions that I think that are going to be very important, not only for the, you know, the healthcare leaders and public health system, but of course, for our financial communities and um, who are really trying to work through what our economies are going to look like and, you know, our society is going to look like in the next two to three years. Justin, just um, going back to Paul's question around maybe the Hoskins effect, uh, is it possible to develop uh, a new you know, universal COVID vaccine working against all the strains? People have been talking about that for flu for a long, long time, and it's never been possible for flu. For COVID, I think that it shouldn't necessarily even be an aim because I think we'll be able to adapt our science on a, on a very regular basis. If you think about the fact that the first sequence for SARS-CoV-2 was published in mid-January and by April, people were being dosed in phase one immunogenicity studies. Um, we can do things very rapidly, m- more rapidly now than then. And I don't think that should necessarily even be a name of ours. I think, I think, um, I think there needs to be an understanding that it will be endemic unless there's mandatory vaccination of all children. In every society, there's going to be at least 15 to 25% of people who will refuse vaccination for whatever reason. I don't think anyone's really thinking about a universal COVID vaccine at this point in time. That's just my view. No, no, I, I, I don't think that that really is the scientific community's goal at this point. I do think the scientific community is really focused on doubling down on the evolution of these new platforms. I mean, we should remember that the mRNA vaccine that, you know, from Moderna and Pfizer, that we're all so familiar with now is is a fundamentally new platform in this space. Um, I think the second point is that the, I believe that the peptide platform, the Novavax and the like, I think will become an important part of the armamentarium. and let's not forget, there's over a hundred novel vaccines. It, there's not a day that goes by. I saw today that uh, there was an announcement in um, Japan, I think, that is it, uh, Raichi Sankyo have announced that they're developing a novel mRNA platform. So, yeah, so yeah, exactly. So I think that, um, I think what really you're seeing now is people doubling down on optimizing these platforms so that they will be flexible and quick enough to adapt on an ongoing basis and um, and that therefore it becomes one of adaptation. You refer to these, uh, you know, the, the, the pipeline of other novel vaccine technologies. What are the issues around running new trials to, to test them? I mean, so there's about four different issues. We have vaccines that work. So is it ethical to perform placebo controlled trials? Number one. Number two, because hospitalizations and deaths are going, having an endpoint of, say, preventing severe hospitalization or sickness is very difficult to measure because, you know, it's going away. Um, number three, we, we have technologies that we know work. And even though they have side effects, 
you know, messenger RNA has entered real time. We have adenoviral vaccines. We have, as Annalisa said, Novavax is protein subunit vaccine, which is adjuvanted. And, and we have others as well. So is it worth introducing a totally new technology when we, when we have therapies that work? Annalisa? I, I agree. I think this speaks to the, um, again, um, learning more about the science of this infection so that potentially in the future we can develop biomarkers or measures that are good surrogates for the clinical effect that we want to achieve. I think you'll see more of that um, as, you know, um, as companies and, and academics um, start to explore the, um, how, they, how they're gonna innovate in this space. And the one thing I'm encouraged about actually is that it does seem that some of our uh, preclinical models, both cell-based models and um, animal-based models in vivo pharmacology seem to be reasonably predictive actually. Um, they've sort of panned out reasonably well in the translation between preclinical and what we've seen in the human setting. So that's useful. So um, I, do, I do feel that the, that the approach that we've seen in the last 12 months, I think this is the message, these massive studies with a primary endpoint of death in the hospital, I don't think that's going to be the future. So the question I does innovation in new vaccine development for COVID look like in the next few years? And I do believe that will come to basically uh, sort of surrogate markers, biomarkers, just an evolution of that. But for now, for now, I think everyone has to sort of feel that we have what we have. We have five or six. Um, obviously, we mustn't forget those that have come out of China and Russia and other parts of the world. Um, and frankly, although we're still living in this scarcity on a global basis, um, one would hope that those really will become the workhorses that will be able to serve large parts of the population, certainly for the next 12 right. to 18 months. And, and just to take that further, we also know that we'd like one shot fridge stable as well. We've learned that just from a practical point of view. Yeah, clearly, clearly, which by the way is why I suspect that the US um, is doubling down and focusing on the J&J &J vaccine as their workhorse. Um, and uh, Justin, we've seen companies like AstraZeneca that you alluded to struggle to optimise production at some plants. How complex is it to make uh, these vaccines? I, I don't think the, the um, production issues are the main issue necessarily with AstraZeneca. I think there's been one or two political issues there. Um, I think everyone would agree. But, um, you know, Pfizer have had problems at their MERS plant in Belgium. Moderna have had issues with Lonza. Everyone's had issues. The Serum Institute of India has had issues. It's very difficult to do this properly, but manufacturing practice or GMP is well recognized to be left in the hands of very specialized companies that do it day in, day out, where you need vertical integration, a supply chain, the finish and fill, the syringes, the glass vials, and everything automated. Now, now this is something that's well known to the companies in the space. But of course, they're always going to be teething problems with it. I yes. refer to them as growing pains. Whether, you know, scaling up, if you look at, you know, we've got 7 billion people in the world. We're still traveling more than anyone's ever traveled. That's 7 billion viral reservoirs, if you like, some of whom are immunosuppressed or on chemotherapy, where the virus can mutate more easily. You've got the issue of pets and animals, which is a whole other subject. But there's probably going to be a big oversupply of vaccines as well, which people haven't really talked about. 
And in terms of manufacturing, there's always going to be growing problems and teething problems, but they're bumps in the road. Annalisa, you've uh, introduced you at the beginning, you know, you've worked for, for big pharma companies. So what's your view on the, the production realities, which uh, the public at large, you know, well, barely know about? I think the, the message is it's a complex process. And as Justin said, before COVID, you probably, you know, people really weren't aware of the fact that there were about four or five companies in the world who really over the last 20, 30 years have been responsible for the majority, really, of the innovation, the majority of innovation in vaccines and have developed long standing capabilities in manufacturing global supply chains. There weren't that many companies, okay, as opposed to other parts of our sector. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second is that this is a biological process. And so uh, it has many steps. It often involves um, supply chains that are complicated and absolutely, as you've, we've discovered, cross national boundaries. So whether that be flying vials or stockers or packaging or even just the basic, um, let's just say, ingredients of the biological process. It is complicated. So that's the second thing. And the third thing that I'd like to say is that with these biological processes, um, if you run them over and over and over again, you will get errors because it's the nature of the process. So to make that really simple, if you run a process and it's called a batch, a batch, those batches are tested on a continuous basis as you're making the vaccine. And if they fall out of spec, you know, one of the little assays and measures out of spec, you are required under good manufacturing process to sort of throw it away, all right? Because we're held to very tight standards. And this is a, it's really a game of probabilities because, you know, over time, if you run it enough times, things will go out of spec. And so we've heard this issue around, well, the yield out of the cells wasn't quite up to the expectation. Or, you know, there have been some assay issues or out of spec issues, it happens. So it's not a surprise to the industry. I think why it's been an issue, the reason it's been an issue is because we're under pressure to do this at volume very quickly. And the, the last thing I'll say is a company like AstraZeneca that wasn't traditionally in the business of manufacturing vaccines. So couldn't really just bring one of its facilities online or a few of them globally, like some of the other companies. They had to go out and work with many, many third party manufacturing facilities on a global basis and put that all in place over a period of nine months. That is an enormously complex um, uh, procedure and operation. So it's not surprising as Justin has said, that it's going to take time to bed that down for that team globally to really get to be a highly functioning, predictable, you know, uh, organization. So I, I do. I was not surprised at all, and I don't think our industry was that surprised. But it will get better over time. It will clearly get better over time. And I think the other thing it will do is focus uh, not only our industry, but and it has focused governments and the investment community on the need for more capacity, more national capacity, and for building a long-term capability around manufacturing of these critical and essential medicines and vaccines on an ongoing basis. And that can only be a good thing. And ju just to mention, you know, well-known established vaccine manufacturers such as Black, so Sanofi and Merck have not 
succeeded in making COVID yeah. vaccines here as well. And they're, they're, they're well-known vaccine manufacturers, just to highlight how difficult it is. That's right. Justin, you've um, referred to the, the political pressure that Astra uh, has come under. I mean, the, the, the onset of you know, vaccine wars and uh, the threat of, of uh, export bans and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, how, how worried was that just is that just in, inevitable in a situation like this? Or uh, is, is it actually something that's going to be quite damaging to you know, preventing the, uh, the global uh, spread of, of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as a global phenomenon. There's no question that China... For example, if you look at the speech President Xi gave in Colombia yesterday, um, is using its vaccine for diplomacy. Russia as well, Hungary giving it in Europe before any EU approval. Um, I think there's an inevitability to it and people are using it as part of the diplomacy effort. And it's being used as a pawn amongst political games between people, but it's not really my area. What I would say on the subject of China is that I've been very surprised that we saw their animal data, their phase one and phase two data published in good journals like JAMA, uh, Science, The Lancet. And we've seen no phase three China vaccine data published. I don't really understand why that is still despite seeing their data released a long time ago, considering they published all their earlier data and early on in the pandemic, they published negative treatment data for remdesivir and lopinavir ritonavir showing that in their populations, it didn't work well. So I've been very surprised by that, but there's no question that it's being used as part of a political process, but I'm not the best person to speak to about that, I'm afraid. One of the big issues, and Paul, perhaps I'll bring you in here because I haven't heard from you for a while, but uh, in terms of you know, distribution and, and, and getting the, the, the vaccines distributed across the world um, how do you, and ensuring this fair global access, um, it looks like there should be plenty of vaccines to do it. What, what, what are the issues uh, of um, making sure everybody gets access to it? I think from my, my point of view, looking at this from an investor's perspective, it's clearly a challenge, as, as, as both Annalisa and Justin have pointed to, of scaling up production. Everybody's frantically trying to do that, but there probably will come a point where we cross over and there's, there's too much capacity, um, which is great because that then drives down prices, which is the, the, obviously a secondary issue with regard to ensuring everybody can, can, can get fair and reasonable access to these things in less developed um, parts of the world. And I think, you know, if you look at, ultimately what, what's happened with, with things like Gavi um, over time driving down the prices of vaccines. I think uh, all of this points to uh, ultimate commoditization of, of these things. You know, the WHA is probably going to decide what, what an acceptable vaccine is, specification-wise, the ones we've got. They look, efficacy looks incredible across the vast majority of them, so they're all good enough. So I guess it comes down to, um, you, you know, the points that, 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 that Justin talked about. It has to be stable at a temperature that's suitable to the developed status and, and environment of the country you're, you're shipping it to it's a question of what price and, and and how much can you ship but if we think about the challenge of you know we, we need everybody to be vaccinated for life to truly return to normal then that's actually a great position to be in especially if as as, as it was discussed earlier as well that we don't actually need you know, new vaccines every single year that maybe we have multi-year durability or that actually the variants that are emerging can be dealt with reasonably well with the, with the vaccines that exist today. So I think all of that is actually 
uh, very exciting, but we're obviously going to have this painful process where the countries that paid for the research are going to want first dibs and there's not going to be enough to go around, at least initially. Obviously, as I referred to, we've got an urgent and then we've got an important. And in the urgent, you know, it's clear that, you know, we need to, we need to get on top of the current, the current waves, um, both in the UK, um, we've got to get as many people vaccinated as possible. We've got to get them people out and about. We've got to get our economies going. We've got to start rebuilding trust that our people have, um, both in their ability to get access to vaccine, access to good standards of care, access to a system that's going to support them, and then obviously access back into an economy that's working for them. So for me, in the short term, it's about public health, vaccination, public health measures, um, and getting ourselves back back into a, a society that's confident. I think in the, in the medium term I mentioned earlier, I would love to see a joined up thinking um, around uh, what does a, a public health response, a health public health response look like for the next two years? You know, what are we in the UK going to do to invest in, you know, vaccinations, therapeutics, diagnostics, and how are we going to navigate the inevitable you know, waves or, or perhaps it will be continue to be seasonal to a certain extent. What does that look like? And I think the third thing that we really need to focus on, and Paul was just mentioning it to me, but, you know, mentioning it, which is that this is a global issue. I just, I just continue to be um, not frustrated, but anxious, anxious uh, around the intersection of global health with these geopolitical issues. And I do feel that um, hopeful that the G7 um, hopefully can come together and start to make progress on this. I hope that the WHO and other multinational organizations can perhaps bring some sensibility to uh, the fact that we do need to focus globally. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, uh, some of these geopolitical, inevitable geopolitical issues um, that we will have to live with um, will not delay progress and will not become a drag on the next wave of innovation that we have in our hands to move forward. And so at the end of the day, it's all about leadership, isn't it, moving forward? So that's really where I'm at at the moment. I'd echo what Annalisa and, and Paul said, that it's very easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day -day minutiae. Everything happens at such rapid speed. But one thing I like about what Annalisa said is you have to have a long-term perspective. And for me, the long-term perspective has been that although, you know, I discovered a treatment and led global clinical trials on it, I'd have to say the treatments for COVID once you have a pneumonia aren't very good. Vaccines on the other hand seem excellent, our way out of the pandemic. So we've been led by science out of the pandemic. And focusing on the, you know, a more humanized society, its intersection with other things like climate change, geopolitics, stuff that I don't know very much about, I think is going to become increasingly important in the relationship we have with each other and with the planet that we live on. And to have a longer term perspective, such as the one Annalisa just articulated is the most important thing for me. Paul, um, last word to, to you. You uh, posed a question uh, near the beginning. Um, are you satisfied with the, the answers that you've been hearing? I think, I, I think as ever, th thank you both. A fascinating debate. I think it's very hard to come away from a call like this and not feel actually more optimistic than you did before it started for the simple reason that we know there are many things we don't know. 
But what's been expressed today is confidence that actually the science we have around the existing vaccines is robust and that some of the challenges we're having around logistics and production and things are, are probably shorter term. So, so if, we, if, we, if we just focus on that for a moment, you know, the vaccines we have are incredibly good. So if they don't work quite as well for some of these variants, they're still probably good enough. And as Justin said, certainly better than the flu, for example. And um, you know, we've already reduced mortality, mortality significantly, and we're beginning to think about ways to bring life back to normal. So there's been a lot over the last year to, to be worried about and to be pessimistic about. The overriding message from this is, 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 is one of positivity and, and, and hope that actually we are in the beginning of the end, which is, which is a great way to, to as you say, um, sort of mark the anniversary of the first lockdown here in the UK. The scientific achievements have been uh, uh, admirable and uh, very exciting to see. Well, uh, thank you, Paul. And uh, Justin and Annalisa, thank you too very much for for joining us today. It's been a very interesting discussion and uh, I look forward to our our next uh, episode in the series. But in the meantime, thank you very much. (laughs) 